0: What's up guys? Welcome back to episode number 42 of Connection is Magic. Thank you so much for coming back and tuning in. This week we sit down with my mentor from my music business days, Tony Ferguson, who was one of the very first Hires at Interscope Records. We get into his story growing up in the UK, traveling the world with bands. We get into him coming to America, working with some of uh, Bruce Springsteen's band, Clarence Clemens, and Miami Steve Van Zandt. We dig into that fateful phone call he got from Jimmy Iovine before he had even met Jimmy or crossed paths with him. Uh, Tony's name was kind of floating around in certain circles and made its way to Jimmy, and basically he got a phone call from Jimmy before Interscope existed to come out to New York, all expenses paid, super cool story. Uh, Then we get into him discovering No Doubt and Gwen Stefani and putting himself on the line to sign this band in an era when ska music and this type of stuff was so far removed from what was currently working in music. It was all hair metal stuff, you know, Guns N' Roses, White Snake, Poison, bands like that tony was able to sort of see through that noise and recognize the star that gwen would become so we get into that and we also touch on where tony was when he heard the news that john lennon had been killed what that somber moment felt like in real time for him who was in a band and what other bands were feeling at the time that news came that and so much more so excited to have you guys check this one out here we go welcome everybody to Connection Is Magic. I'm your host, Samson Schulman, a former music executive turned podcaster and coach. In a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain, we end up feeling lonely and isolated, and opportunities for human connection are missed. On this podcast, we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded, unfiltered pieces. We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to Connection. Welcome everybody to a very special episode number 42 of Connection is Magic with my friend Tony Ferguson. Hi, Sam. <laughs> long time no see. <laughs> I know. We were just doing the math. Five years? Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. Five fucking years. Yeah. And it felt like a blink of an eye. Yeah. Right? At this mean... day and age, feels <laughs> like a blink of an <laughs> eye. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. You know, thank you for taking the time. And uh, if, uh, yeah, I say we, we dig right in. Okay. So... Uh, I just wanted to get just a pinch of background because you have, you have a fascinating story, um, probably one of the most fascinating we've had on yet. And you basically grew up in England, playing in bands, long story short, right? Yep. And um, any hit records? You had like one hit record maybe, right? Oh, I spent
1: a little bit of time. I wasn't with the original uh, members of these groups, but uh, bands like uh, Unit 2 at the time, which had a, a hit. Yeah with a song called Concrete and Clay. Mm. And then after that was a band called Christy that had a hit with a song called Yellow River that did really well in America. And we spent a lot of time over the years with those two groups, some friends of mine as well, other musicians, Mm -hmm. playing in those bands. And we managed to... um, I don't know. We took about a couple of years, two and a half years, three years, maybe.
0: You went all over the world, or all over. Th- went to Latin America. Yeah, exactly. Latin America.
1: Yeah. Went to Eastern Europe at the time when you know Eastern Europe was like the Berlin Wall. That's amazing. So during those periods of time, that was kind of fascinating. Going into those countries and coming out alive. Uh, rock and roll was still at its uh, height. That's Which- for sure.
0: That's a whole, we could do a whole podcast on how rock feels dead and actually rock has been dead for a little while. I'm sure you'd agree. It's unfortunate. But yeah. Yeah. It was funny because when hip hop was emerging, I had a lawyer, a music lawyer come on saying he was doing hip hop clients and all of his, his peers were like, why are you doing hip hop clients? It's a fad. It's going to go away. Huh. It's funny that the opposite happened. The opposite. I feel like rock went away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it was so. Tom Petty. I think Tom Petty's famous quote was that rock and roll will become what jazz is today, which back jazz became during its period, during the 20s and the 30s, was like the music, yeah. American jazz. Yeah. And then it kind of took the back seat, and pop music came in, and big band music, and then rock and roll, and it disappeared almost. Yeah, basically. Rock and roll's pretty much become that.
0: That's a great, great uh, analogy. How do you make the jump from the UK to Los Angeles, right? Where you would ultimately go and you got associated with Interscope records before they were even in existence, right? Yes. And that's a fascinating story. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about how you made that. How did those chapters connect?
1: Basically 1970 was spent on an island off the coast of France called Jersey. And I hang out there with a bunch of musicians and we did basically covers. mm mm-hmm working about four shows a night, uh, six days a week. So I did that for a year. So you really honed your chops in with your stuff. And I re- there was a couple of members of the band that did really well. So I came back to England after that mm-hmm. with nothing going on, wondering what to do next. And uh, as it happens, I got a call from an old bandmates of mine. called Harm- They were in a band called Harmony Grass, which was the incarnation after tony rivers and the castaways it was the same band they changed their name
0: you got a pretty good memory tony you were worried about how much of this you're going to remember but you, you're remember doing the, pretty good I can't <laughs> remember so names
1: the band members, so that's the problem so we had a nice run with that in the 70s and i came back and started a band called capability brown we were signed to charisma records that had genesis um,
0: and uh, a lot of prog... That's a, that's a big deal, right?
1: Prog, mm-hmm. A lot of mm-hmm. prog bands, Lindisfarne and bands like that were mm-hmm. really, really good. as independent labels. So I had a lot of independent work because after I left playing, which would have been around about 1974, that's 1975, I started getting into more of the business of music and basically running a, a PA system. Mm. So I became a sound engineer mm-hmm. by default. Mm -hmm. Because I decided I was too old, I was going bald, and I lost my way as Mm. being an artist.
0: You felt like that window had closed on the possibility of being a big artist, right? For me, yeah, Uh I felt that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, other people didn't. But also, you've got to remember, that was the Thatcher years. Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of England. Mm -hmm. And her austere measures caused like 13% unemployment rate. Uh, The national debt was out of control. And I decided I joined Stiff Records.
0: And Stiff Records is a UK based label, right?
1: It was a UK independent label. They they were kind of the punk new wave scene. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of artists on their roster. And uh, I met their, I was doing a gig sound engineering for a band in one of the clubs in London. And the guy came up to me, an Irishman, and he said his name was Dave Robinson, and asked me to meet him at his office the following day. That was Stiff Records. From that point on, I worked for Stiff Records doing sound jobs and road managing jobs for their bands like Reckless Eric, Jonah Louie, and all these other bands. Uh, and I did that for about two years, I guess. And then he offered me a job to go over to America. And you were doing sound? I was No, I was doing road managing. No,
0: you were doing tour managing.
1: Tour managing. I tour oh, managed that wow. whole okay. thing. It was about five or six bands, crews, trucks, everything. Took care of that.
0: Can I ask you something? Mm-hmm? Bands can be pretty reckless and wild people. And you're no, kind of... <laughs> really? Spoiler. <laughs> and so you were a bona fide. I mean, obviously you had chops doing what you do, but... In a lot of ways, it felt like being a bona fide babysitter at times, too, didn't it? Be the road manager? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, some of the managers have different things. Some of them take care of the artist and nothing else. Yeah. It was up to me to do all the travel arrangements, taking care of the crew, taking care of the musicians. Uh, it was a heavy job. I had an assistant, thank God, because after about uh, the first two or three days, I realized It's too much for just one guy, so we've got an assistant in there as well.
0: Any horror stories you could share with us? You could could even leave out names, but I'm curious.
1: No, I remember that we were in Detroit, doing a show in Detroit, and then we got the news that John Lennon had died that night. So I remember the sadness of that really put a damper on the gig. And, of course, the bands did tribute songs for John yeah, Lennon, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I remember that. that. That was the first thing because that, that really hit everybody. Mm. Lennon's death. It really did. Now, um, we ended up in um, San Francisco at the end of the tour, and I never went back to England. You I were re-
0: just a single Tony at this point. There was no like uh, marriage the, or anything no, really there, tying you, right? To, there was no Mrs. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, no, yeah. Mrs. Tony, exactly. So
1: I basically went to New York. Okay. stayed in New York for about six years and then got a call from a producer, record producer. And I was doing a, a band called Joe King Carrasco and the Crowns.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, we, got uh, a, we got a Wikipedia of that, everybody. You got it. They're, 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 <laughs> Joe King tex- Carrasco and the Crowns.
1: They were from Texas, Austin, Texas. They were a Tex-Mex band. So they had a number one hit in France through Stiff Records. Stiff Records signed this band out of Austin, Texas. Joe King Carrasco and the crowds. They had a hit called Buena. Of course. And it went to number one in France. So we toured France. Then we toured all around America. And they were friends with ZZ Top. So we were hanging out with ZZ Top. That was a crazy time.
0: (laughs) And uh, What were the ZZ Top guys like? I just know the beards. Everybody just knows the beards. Are they... I imagine them being like Duck Dynasty type type individuals. Are they are they more intelligent than one might think?
1: Oh yeah, they're very okay. very smart guys. They were great guys for us. And we did a, a secondary market tour, which is basically all the south. <laughs> so
0: we went through Tony. The I whole can't imagine south. you. I can't imagine you like the Bible Belt. Like I just think like that's uh it's a it's quite a juxtaposition for me because here you are. I feel like you're. I didn't fit in at all. That, that's what I was going yeah, for. No, I didn't. Exactly.
1: So, uh, being the road manager, I was with Grand Funk Railroad and we had a crew and everything in the trucks. I remember stopping on the 4th of July, I think it was. We stopped at a truck stop, massive truck stop that the American has. And I went up to the counter. Everybody sat down, went up to the counter, and I ordered some coffees and some stuff for our table. And then we had about three other tables there was a guy there and I'm looking at the TV and it's all 4th of July I am speaking in a British accent and this guy comments on my British accent like where are you from <laughs> I said England actually Yeah, and I made some crack uh, after he was talking about it we were, he was laughing about the British and how that we whipped their ass and all this stuff and I said yeah, we took a tea break and you took the country from us <laughs> we
0: okay. took a tea break
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know and he got offended no shit yeah. and they the I suddenly the, the vibe turned black and I you could like, tell like Holy some, shit. something
0: was going to go down basically yeah, there's yeah, there yeah. two yeah. other
1: guys at the bar with him and yeah. they all looking at me like a smart ass you know British UK guy how oh, dare you no and then I said look no problem. i just, just getting some coffees for my friends. And they all stood up. There was about, I don't know, 15 or oh, us. Oh, luckily
0: you had a little crew there had a with you. I right? Okay, good. For the Americans. Or we might not have Tony sitting here today. I don't know. You Who knows know? now? This know. day and age. Yeah. No. <laughs> you went through my city at one point. You said Detroit, right? With Grand yeah. Funk. And, and it was a shithole at the time. Uh, I mean, it was in rough shape at the time, wasn't it? Was a it? Very- just post riot I mean the riots were like what 67 or something
1: yeah but this is after the riots
0: yeah so right. it was just but it went pretty downhill after the riots it was, so you, it you it came was such a sad thing yeah. because yeah.
1: you know for a musician it's a sad thing to see because all the Motown and the great mm. artists that came out of the Detroit area Michigan mm-hmm. area it was amazing you know? yeah. yeah but there was one time I was working with the Bruce Springsteen organization and I took the band's solo tours out like Stephen Van Zandt Miami Steve Van Zandt Mm-hmm. He had a band called uh, Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. So you
0: did the road managing for him as well, uh, well right? No, no, I did mostly the sound for oh, him. Oh, sound for him, okay.
1: And then the other band I worked for was Clarence Clemens, the sax player. Oh, the player. sax
0: player with, yeah, sure. And actually, we went to
1: Detroit with Clarence, and we stayed at the Book Cadillac yes. Hotel. Yes, very famous, yeah, yeah. which a famous hotel, right? And the Book had definitely seen better days. As we walked up to our room, first of all, all the band was white. Right. Uh, seasoned musicians out of New York, mm-hmm. except for the lead singer, who was black, and Clarence. Mm-hmm. So it was about an eight-piece band, I guess. Had brass section, yeah. all kinds of things. So we booked into the book Cadillac. Everyone's like rolling their eyes like, oh, the fuck. As we went, as I went to my room, I couldn't believe it because as I passed the doors walking along the corridor, I went to my room and the door was just swinging on a broken... <laughs> A
0: broken hinge. (laughs) Your room door wouldn't even close? Oh, my God. That's So I went
1: downstairs. I said, this looks like (laughs) there's a problem with the room. He goes, oh, yeah, we had some trouble last night. Sorry about that. I'll give you another room. So we found another room. And then we didn't want to go out too much at night because it looked pretty shady around the Cadillac area. But they had a club downstairs. Mm -hmm. And it was, what we didn't know was it was an all-black club. So these white guys... And myself. We went down to the club, and the guy at the door kind of said, uh, what are you doing here? We said, we just come down for a drink. Yeah, he yeah. Goes, uh, Well, I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, we're musicians, and we're with Clarence Clements. Clarence Clements? Oh, he was, he was
0: a fan, right? Okay, right. yeah, So yeah, we, yeah. Walked,
1: we walked in. Yeah. But as we walked in, there was these great dancing Going on and real R and B music, great R and B music, there was a live act on. Yeah. It was amazing and we stayed down there. First of all we got some dirty looks. Of course. Because we yeah, yeah, were the yeah, only white guys in the damn club. Yeah. Yeah. But then the word went around that Clarence and then people came up and said, Where's Clarence? And of course Clarence was up in his room and do did... actually Clarence didn't stay in the book Cadillac, he moved to another <laughs> hotel. <hollow tub. laughs>
0: I can't blame you. am out of here. Let's take the next jump. So then. Uh, well, the next
1: job was I finished all those tours around right about 19, 1984, 85. Okay. Uh, Bruce was going to go back out on tour, so there was no work left for that, for me.
0: What I like to talk about on this podcast, Tony, is transitions and how when we're going through a life transition, sometimes it could get hazy or does that make sense? It can get hazy. What's coming next? I don't really see clearly what's coming. Oh, yeah, was you're... there any anxiety
1: around that, though? Because Every you know, time, you've ever... every time I, ch- I changed jobs or changed bands. There was anxiety and, like, around like, Where's that. Where's the next band going to come exactly. from? But luckily, my reputation in certain circles <laughs> grew. <laughs> and then I got this phone call from a producer named Jimmy Iovine.
0: And you were in New York when you got I was in the New York, in Manhattan. And, and this would be like around mid-80s? 85, 86. Okay. And tell us about this phone call, Jimmy. <laughs> well, for?
1: I got this call a woman came on the voice she goes Tony Ferguson I, I said yes she said uh, I have Jimmy Iovine for you and I went
0: Jimmy Iovine why Did you were aware of him <laughs> oh, of course oh, oh got it I he didn't fr- know if he was fr- big in the early '80s, oh, right? Okay, fuck okay, it. Okay, right, okay.
1: He did the Bruce, early Bruce Springsteen records. He did Tom Petty records. He did Stevie Nicks.
0: Already, Bob already happened.
1: records. Stevie Nicks hadn't happened by then. Okay, okay. He done Bob Seeger, He he done a bunch of bunch of acts. Okay. And he was the main engineer as, on For- on the Roy Cicada, Cicada. I think his name was. And Jimmy was. The gopher, uh, I guess this was the record plant. He got a overnight call. He was working a second engineer on the John Lennon record, I believe. I forget which record, it may be in the rock Was rock that and roll his first record.
0: time working with Lennon? Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of broke his career, didn't it? Kind it of? did or because
1: well, because Jimmy's reputation came out of that
0: yeah. pretty pretty solid because yeah. He, I think he was working on Easter that day. Like he went in on a holiday, you know, that documentary, the defiant ones that talks about the history of interscope. I'm pretty sure his family wanted him to go to mass or church or something. He's like, no, I want to go in. And then John happened to need help that day. Does That's, that sound right? Yeah. John yeah, needed help yeah, that. Yeah, day, yeah, So yeah.
1: he did that. But then we got a phone call. From, uh, they got a phone call late at night to say Elton John was showing up. To play on John's record,
0: get the fuck out of here! That
1: man has like a all, horseshoe. All the <laughs> He's all like the, so lucky. Um, all the engineers have gone home. Jimmy was the only one there, so he set the piano up
0: for John or for, uh, Elton. for Elton. Elton.
1: And then John didn't show up. Showed up late, so Elton's on the thing. So Elton says, "Run the track. I mean, I'm not waiting. You know."
0: You didn't want to wait for John. Oh, you would have done. <laughs> be like, Don't get me wrong, but like yeah. time was
1: ticking. Okay, okay. So he played the staff and everything they did the track john came in the engineers came in elton said we think we finished it they go well finished what I said this track you wanted me to do uh, this engineer set the thing up and i've recorded it mm-hmm. so they played it it was perfect boom that was it all, a- a- all of a sudden jimmy's like rose in lennon's eyes
0: back to this so the woman gets on the phone jimmy's on the phone for you and then and then you're about to talk to Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy said Do you want to come to California.
1: I said, why? He said, well, I don't know, but there's a ticket for you at JFK. Uh, come out here for a couple of weeks. I'll pay for everything. So I did.
0: So just on the strength of a recommendation, because you said you'd never even crossed paths with Jimmy at this point, right? Right. So just on the strength of recommendation, that you, you must have done pretty good then, Tony, because that's pretty that's pretty amazing to say, hey. I'm going to pay for everything you want a job, basically, is what he said, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I think the recommendations yeah. came from, I mean, it didn't happen in a vacuum Yeah. to get that call. So I yeah. think Jimmy spoke to B- East, B- East Street Band members. Mm-hmm. And also Jimmy's assistant at that time, Janet Weber, was a good friend of my then wife. So they put my name You forward. came
0: vetted is came what vetted it was, somewhere. right. Okay. So I
1: got on the plane, went to, and Jimmy took me. I was the token British (laughs) robot that stood next to Jimmy. I think it was uh, Irving Azov that said to Jimmy, who's the limey?
0: What's the limey? Limey
1: Limey was an old term for British. It came from the First World and Second World Wars. They called them limeys. Irving Azov made that comment. And then Jimmy said, well, what do you want to do? I said, Jimmy, I've come, you brought me out here. What are you offering? (laughs) I said, I don't know, maybe you could do a little production, maybe we could do this, maybe do maybe management. We'll go to management. I said, Management? I said, Have you ever managed a band before? How difficult could it be?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we did. You are kidding me. So you and Jimmy managed an artist together. And
1: at that time, he was doing an artist, producing an artist named uh, Maria McKee in a band called Lone Justice.
0: Yeah. Which uh, had a lot of heat. There was a lot of heat on it. Yeah, on I remember.
1: It. And it was a great record. It was a really good record. So I, did, I started doing tours Didn't she Hora. do
0: a showcase and implode at the showcase? Something like that. I remember you sharing a story where, or the showcase did not go as you'd hoped, and all the air was kind of sucked out of the room, and that was the end of that project. I remember you sharing that with me. Well,
1: it was, Maria was, you've got to remember, was about 16... 17 years old.
0: In other words, it's a lot of pressure for someone that yeah. age. Yeah. And
1: uh, her, she was brought up by her grandparents who were very religious. And she had this openness and naivety that all the members of the band in Lone Justice felt they had to protect her as well because she was, she had not any idea what she was doing. Mm. She was just Never been on the road before. Never been in a recording studio before. She mm-hmm. just had this voice mm-hmm. that stirred people like Geffen, who Geffen signed her, David Geffen signed her, and Jimmy Iovine managed her. Wow. And Jimmy was always about the voice. He was the, the voice first, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Jimmy was all about the fucking voice. Jimmy definitely ended up managing her and we had some wild times with that band. Rolling Stone magazine was doing the tour. They came out on the road with us, all the interviews. I mean, she mm. got a lot of heat. And it was really. Like you thought that
0: was going to go, right?
1: Yeah, big time. Yeah. But it did go. I mean, by today's standards, I mean, they sold 350,000 records in the first, you know. Eight months or so,
0: which is impressive, but not what you guys had hoped for. Let's say, but because in those
1: days, if you didn't go platinum,
0: you you were were kind of done, right? Yeah. (laughs) So days have changed, Tony. Yes, that ends then, uh, right? That loses its steam eventually ends, and then you and Jimmy now, you guys have a conversation, a follow up conversation, right? And you say, "What's next, Jimmy?" Or what's that like? Pretty much.
1: we, We we suddenly realized that Maria was. Was very hard to control, and Jimmy's plate started to get full with U two recording, U two mm-hmm. recording, uh, Stevie Nicks, like you talked about, and a lot of other bands. Annie Lennox and doing work with
0: Dave Stewart, U and Where all Where does that kinds leave you? I'm it. thinking.
1: Well, I was running the office for the management. Really,
0: was it called? It wasn't called Interscope Management at the time, even right? It was just. Jimmy and Tony management, I or think, whatever. Yeah. I think
1: Jimmy, we just had some bullshit name, Ice Cream Management, Ice Cream yeah. Records, something yeah. like that. you got to remember at that time, the record business was exploding in the 80s because people were changing their record collections from vinyl to CDs. Sure. So they're rebuying oh. the records all over but, again. But
0: money was coming in hand over fist, that oh, right? Tons yeah, yeah, of money. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was cash.
1: Yeah. Considered yeah. like cash. Yeah. So when these uh, Wall Street companies saw this, they thought, we, we want another party, right, yeah. And they bought these companies for millions, Seagram- of millions Seagram's of Seagram's is one
0: of them, right? Seagram's and- is one mm-hmm,
1: of them. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, uh, the A&M and Geffen and everything. They yeah. all went, all went uh, to these bigger, larger companies. Conglomerates, t- yeah. yeah. And then things started to get funky about the music business. You know, money, everyone's getting tired of the hard metal scene during right. the 80s and right. the rock. So by the time 1990 came on, it's like it hit a brick wall. It just Mm. stopped. For instance, Atlantic Records fired 17 bands pretty much in one week. Wow. They had a roster because Nirvana changed everything. Grunge music came in. The shift was like a 180. Yeah. So all those bands went belly up. That's when Jimmy went, "Eh, I'm not liking the management business anymore. Let's go into the record business. And then Jimmy teamed up with Irving Azoff. Uh, that didn't really work out too well. Irving made his own label through Universal. So they were butting heads a bit at the time. So they were butting heads. <clears throat> yeah. And then Jimmy met up with a, a financier named Ted Field. I forget who suggested. Marshall Fields. Marshall Fields Empire. Yeah. In so the Midwest, that was big. Big. And um, he had been successful in investing in movies and became very successful movie producer. Yeah. Ted already. Yeah. Because it was, he went very much against his family.
0: <laughs> he was like the black sheep of the millionaire family, right? Exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. All the family went into stock yeah. shares, properties, yeah. developments and stuff. And he went into the entertainment business and moved to California. Yeah. It was like shock horror. So they formed a company. Yeah. They didn't know what to call it. Right. So the Interscope was a name for Ted Fields Holdings, other holding companies. It was called Interscope. So he said, well, for now, let's just call it Interscope. We'll think up a name later. Well, that never happened. So, <laughs> so it became Interscope. You know, after a while, it's like the band called The Who. Everyone goes, The Who?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's after like, a what a while, is that? Yeah. It just sticks. S- and then you start to associate it with the music and That's then it's right. over. Yeah. How many people were there when it was, when Ted, Ted came in with the money, right? To fund this thing. And then it was like Jimmy and it was you and a couple of, I mean, how, how Those small was the operation? Six people. Six, including you. That's crazy. Right man. at the very beginning. Wow. And they're very wow. fast.
1: Too. They got David Cohen to take care of all the CEO end of things. He yeah. came from Sony, so he had an amazing background. Yep. He brought in Tom Wally. They brought in you know some of the top
0: executive, executive talent executive mm-hmm. and
1: paid them more than what wow. they would normally get. Wow. So Ted was all about that. I'll give you more money. If you Just to get the best talent? To get the best talent, but you've got okay. to perform for me, okay? They got off to a great start. They had uh, Rico Suave. And it went in the top 10. So our first it's crazy. record release it's crazy. was a good one. Now, everybody was disgusted because they thought Jimmy Iovine, oh, we we'll get the next Bruce Springsteen. We'll get the next Bob Seger. We'll yeah, get the yeah, next yeah. Tom... So like, where's the, credi- where's the
0: credibility, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, so
1: they recognized that, but they, need, they needed to make a splash. They needed to make a splash, and this was a but, record that landed on our desk. And they went with it, and it got a hit.
0: Interscope did have a rough patch of, are we going to survive or not, at one point, I heard. There yeah, was right, right that. About,
1: right about the second, third year. They had paid so much money for these artists, because a lot of artists, obviously, if they're talking to Sony, Warner Brothers... Uh, you have to outbid. Is this you're going, where you're you have going? to outbid yeah, yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Because Interscope has no track record. Yeah. Why, why would no, why a band want to sign... Why choosing side, Interscope? Why choose Interscope? Okay, they've got people like Jimmy Iovine and blah, 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 Tom Wally, but so what? It's a brand new company. We're not hmm. going to be the guinea pig. Hmm. So we've suddenly paid too much money and we weren't getting enough revenue coming in. And then about the same time... Warner Brothers ran into a problem because we were distributed through Warner Brothers, Interscope Records. We were signing acts that rubbed people up the wrong way between Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Primus, Dog, Primus uh, uh, all those rap artists. Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails, Eminem. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a big push back to Warner Brothers to drop Interscope's distribution.
0: And that happened? And that happened. Which went up being a blessing
1: for Interscope, though, right? It became the blessing because Doug Morris, who, who got let go from Warners, went over to, across the street to MCA and Universal, signed with them as a, a manager, as a director. I forget the, what, he, what he was. Yeah. Um, and he signed. He said, Jimmy, come over here. We'll sign you here. And that was it. So I just oh. gave us more money than Warners. Uh, Tupac Shakur was what they were after. They hated Tupac. He Tupac. was
0: really causing a stir. Tupac yeah. was, you know, he's he real was revolutionary. Brilliant. Oh, he's brilliant! Completely. So they
1: just took took completely. him completely as an, as an enticement. He was enticing the uh, youth of America yeah. into the wrong road, and uh, they went after him.
0: Jimmy and you guys, there's a background with Springsteen and Lennon and Elton John, and now you're getting into really the, uh, you're getting into the core of gangster wrath essentially. Right. So not like who would have seen that coming to go from this sound to that sound. Right. Was there any concern or fear over safety? Because there was a lot of shit happening between there was East coast and West coast rivals. People were getting shot and killed. What what was what were the emotions going on? I want to know on the inner part of interscope and with you guys. Well, first of all, you've got to remember at that time
1: the industry was 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 not against rap, but didn't want it to to succeed. Jimmy definitely saw it as an opportunity. He said, "Okay, you know, all the music that's made these buildings and made me rich and everybody else rich started with black music. Mm -hmm. So why now destroy black music when it's starting this new phase of hip hop? Mm. So Jimmy, and Jimmy saw going on the road the audiences." And a lot of the audience was white people. Hmm. So Jimmy said, fuck it. If no other label's going to do it, we should do it. And he went for it. He was right. He was right. We had the top four rap artists in the world Dr. Dre, Eminem, Tupac Shakur, and Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Trailblazers.
0: Absolutely. So if you were a talented upcoming rap star, you only had Interscope on your mind, probably as a home, right? Oh, we, we were top of the list, definitely. Yeah. For that kind of music. Yeah, yeah, so that took care of the problem you said earlier, where, like, who the fuck is Interscope? Why are we going going with Interscope? Now, your reputation is selling artists now. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. From there, there's other artists that came along that were cutting edge, um, like, sonically, and message of the music was cutting edge. Another one of those artists, I feel like, was Gwen. And no doubt.
1: They were doing... You wave, ska,
0: rock, dance, disco. But would you ever think that that could go mainstream? I mean, you did because you signed the band, right? But like... How, How were you thinking that that could go mainstream at the time? Because I saw what happened with Stiff Records
1: and all the new wave stuff that came over to America. It got soaked up by college students, university students, all kinds of young people. Soaked that music up. So it wasn't a stretch of my imagination to think that a good-looking young blonde girl from California dancing around the stage, vibing up an audience, doing this funk, crossover, rock, ska, bee, whatever you want to call it, music. If nothing else... We could tour forever. I did a showcase at um, SIR. I did a showcase there for Jimmy and Ted, and Jimmy said, yeah. (laughs) What do you you mean, yeah? (laughs) Sign sign the girl. But the Uh, band, I don't know. I don't know about the band. Sign the girl. The girl's got it.
0: Okay. So I said, okay.
1: (laughs) That's not going to (laughs) happen. Because the girls going out with the bass player, <laughs> yeah. they, they they live in each other's houses all the time. You can't split the band up just to do a record deal. Don't,
0: uh, Jimmy didn't get that at the time. Oh,
1: Jimmy, but, but Jimmy said, "Hey, the stakes are high. You got to do something." Yes. Yeah. Wow. But Ted said, "Okay, if you sign them for about seventy grand all in, you make the record with the seventy grand, and that's all they get. and Not a penny more." I'll I'll do it. But it's on your head. You better be right.
0: So, like, if you were wrong about that, it would have cost you maybe your job. Possibly.
1: Yeah. So it was a risk, and it, I became really paranoid when, at that time during the 80s, the record business, A&R people were like a dime a dozen. There was tons of A&R people. So I got a lot of pushback from people saying, you signed No Doubt? Mm. Yeah, you know, and I thought... Baby, your,
0: cred, your cred took a hit,
1: actually, for signing that band, huh? I, without a doubt. People thought you are fucking nuts. They all said, oh, that's a good band, you know, but what are you going to do with it? And at that time, it was like... <laughs> Kiss, Guns N' Roses, all the grunge bands.
0: Knowing that that was the landscape that was working, the Guns N' Roses and the this, what was the thought process? Were you sort of banking on Gwen's, um, you know, energy and persona? Were you kind of banking on Gwen?
1: I was banking on that, but also banking on the the support that the band would give her. Okay. And being a tight-knit family family unit like that, it was very important that the band stayed together, so...
0: You actually saw the psychology behind that, you're saying, was intact.
1: Plus, uh, everyone at that time during the 80s was following the herd. Everyone's looking for the next Nirvana. Everyone's looking for the next uh, Guns of Roses. Everyone's looking for the next Madonna. And I thought, okay, well, Madonna's not doing much. This was right about 1986. Madonna had kind of been on hiatus for a little Mm -hmm. while. And there was really no other females apart from the Belters Mm -hmm. and the One-Hit Wonders there wasn't like anyone coming up in the female young when it was you saw, 16, You 17. saw like
0: a vacant space,
1: you're saying. There was a vacant space, big space to fill. Whether, you know, the band could do it, I didn't have a clue. So we did the first record for 70 grand.
0: Okay, pause. You forgot an important part of the story, though. I did. How you first became privy to No Doubt was oh. actually a great story there. You happen to be valeting your car somewhere, you said, right? It was
1: a typical cliche Hollywood story. I went to William Morris. Mm-hmm. went to William Morris. I did a lunch there. I wanted to see what was on their books, you know, what they're dealing with. Because at that time, publishers and agents were kind of the...
0: Early. They were early, early right? Ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because yeah. labels just didn't want to do the two, three records to get a hit. We want a record out of the... Out of the gate. Out of the gate. So... I went to a and, oh, nice me. I got some tapes. It was People were still handing out cassette tapes. Yeah. And then I went to get, I said, can I get my car validated? I said, yeah, sure, over there. So I went over to the counter of the the lobby of uh, William Morris, and a guy came up and he said, Tony Ferguson, need a scope? I said, yeah. He said, look, I've been working with this young man out of Orange County called No Doubt, you should check him out. So I put it in my pocket. I said, thank you very much, got a car did listen to it for about a week. Then I played it. Okay, this is like memory lane. It's a little blown out. It needs some tightening up, but the bass player can play. The drum is red hot. Mm. The guitar player is great. You know, the keyboard player is great. Um, and they have two horn players who have you know filled the gap. So I thought, what could go wrong? You know, at least you, for 70 grand, you'd be able to get a little bit of money back from that. We finished the record, we sold units, Okay. Got all our money back.
0: Oh, the 70 grand was recouped on that first album. Yeah. Just, yeah. They didn't make the mainstream splash that everybody saw me, but they made a California splash, correct?
1: Yeah. Jimmy said, uh, okay, do record number two. So I said, enough for 70 grand. Mm. We're going to take it up a notch. He said, well, 200,000. I said, done, let's do it, let's do it. So I got 200,000. Fucking great. Um, (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Uh, but then I couldn't find anyone to work with the band.
0: No producer, producers. no producer wanted to take it on because they,
1: you know, they made a list of their producers and it was Elvis Costello, it was <laughs> Elvis Presley. If we
0: could, re- if we could find <laughs> a, like, oh, oh, a whole list, wish bring list bring of Bring him back from the dead. We need a hit.
1: I couldn't find anyone.
0: Thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode. It really means the world to me. If you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you, please visit our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or review. This helps build our audience. Please comment, like, and share this episode out with your family, friends, coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode. I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. The world is in such great need right now, and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, please stay connected.